Hey, this is Ryan from Sunlux. This is Ian from Sunlux, and you're listening to the LSQ Podcast. What's up? It's Jenny Elliskew. Thanks for pressing play on episode 86 of the LSQ podcast, in which I talk with two of the three members of the experimental trio Sunlux, Ian Chang and Ryan Lott. And Sunlux's music is featured in the incredible film Everything Everywhere All at Once, and like that film, it is nominated for multiple Academy Awards. The beautiful end credits tune, which is co-written with Mitski and David Byrne, who perform the duet, is nominated for Best Original Song, and Sunlux's score is nominated in the score category. And I just love the movie so much, I can't stop thinking about it, so it was cool to get to hear from those guys how they've had this layered reaction to it themselves, and also to learn more about Sunlux's history, which we do in this episode. Let's go. Yeah, it's good to see y'all. I know it's been a super busy time, so I appreciate you carving out room in your calendars for this because we are listeners in the throes of a series of activities surrounding a really big moment for Sunlux and for any musician. Um, multiple nominations for Academy Awards connected to everything, everywhere, all at once for which they composed the music. So how are we feeling, dudes? <laughs> There's, I feel like, different uh, phases of processing it's it's definitely very real. I think especially this past weekend we were just at the BAFTA and it kind of broke broke the fourth wall. I think was a term that Rafiq used. And yeah, we're just feeling. I'm just feeling very grateful and honored to be having the work that we put into this movie celebrated like this. And uh, it's only going to enable us to do more film work. And and I'm excited about that too. Yeah. Did you did you have a sense at the outset that it was going to become such a huge part of your lives? I think pretty quickly I realized that it was going to be a big project, like a very ambitious project that was going to take over our lives insofar as just like we'd be working on it for a long time. Once I started to get a sense of how much music was going to be in the movie um, and how much of it was going to be score. But Definitely, I don't think anybody had any expectation or thought that it was going to kind of connect with the world in the way that it has. I don't know. That's that's something that I think I can I can honestly say I don't think anyone really expected that. And it's a beautiful thing. It's kind of like you know, by the time we finished working on it, we had we were so deep inside of it that it was really difficult to tell how it was going to read. Because it is quite chaotic and so you know, and it's very maximal and it throws a lot at the viewer. So I, I, I don't think I had a great concept of exactly how it was going to read with like fresh eyes. I think I can also say, just speaking for myself, that I, I didn't really have a, a grasp of the film myself, for a while. You know, it's not non-linear, but it's, you know, it's it's, <laughs> it's making these leaps uh, across universes and establishing a complexity of of character and of narrative through those leaps and each moment is is its own musical task so it was hard not to get really focused in on tiny pieces of the film and hold on to the broader perspective and that's one of the ways in which daniel's 
were essential to our process. They knew their films so well. They knew exactly what it needed. And when we felt inundated or blurry-eyed, they always had such great direction for us to both accomplish the task at hand, but also do so in a way that keeps everything else in mind so that we, in the end, could create a cohesive story together. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, hard agree that, you know, you can't really anticipate a film like this and just be like, oh, yeah, I got you. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's one of those or something, yeah, you know, it's right. just like, and then you're like, <laughs> I didn't expect it to fuck me up that hard. <laughs> exactly. yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously there's so many things about its, you know, unconventionality that are part of what make it, you know, so great. And if you're listening and you haven't yet seen everything everywhere all at once, you know, please stop listening to this <laughs> podcast. Go, go for the, for your own sake, go do it. You know what I'm realizing now, um, Ian? I feel like the emotional aspect of this movie kind of like crept up on all of us. Did you feel that way? Like, mm -hmm. like as we were working on it, I felt like it got more and more like emotional for me, at least I'll just speak for myself. Like there was a, totally, yeah. maybe I just like, I, I, I really was able to like start to give into it, but yeah, I mean, I, I had, you know, teary moments for sure, near the beginning of the process. But I feel like by the end of the process, I was just like getting ravaged, like watching yeah, watching a, they're, they're... You know, a scene for the 127th time. I'm, I'm not sure yeah. why it happened to me like that, but. Um... There's something about it that like kind of builds up. Uh, I mean, I think the first time I watched down like the rough cut with temp music, like I teared up at the laundry and taxes women's speech for sure. But like, yeah, the more, I watched it and, and worked on it and everything. And then once it was out, having seen it a few times at a few different screenings, it like kind of almost like builds up on it upon itself. Like I remember like the second or third time I watched the movie down in a theater, I was just like, oh wow. Like now I'm feeling like all kinds of sad, like in the first part of the movie, which like I didn't used to feel at all. But now that like I'm like so invested in all these characters, it's 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 like just kind of compounds. <laughs> There's a lot of there's a lot of sweet humor and action to distract from the emotion behind it, and so you know that's I, you know I think it kind of creeps up on you. And and separate from that, obviously, you know we love we love this film. Um, all of us in this conversation love this film and have a deep feel a deep connection to it. Me, even just as a viewer, I'm curious on that on that tip. Like, give me an example of something from your childhood that you can whether it was a movie or music or something a creative thing that you consumed that you loved that much something that's interesting i think is um there are few kind of artists and or records that like ended up being very pivotal for me but it wasn't the type of thing where i was like the first time i heard it it was like the clouds parted i think in a lot of cases actually it's the opposite where the first time i think the first time i heard radiohead for example was like at an HMV, which is like a Tower Records, and this is in Hong Kong, and they have like the listening stations. I was like, oh, this is an interesting album cover. So I listened to it, and I was just like, I don't know what the heck is going on at all. Not really sure how to feel about that. Like, gonna put it down. Uh, but then, like after you know, what album? What what album would that have been? That was Kid A, probably two thousand. I don't know when that came out. Say around one, around one. one something like that. Yeah, yeah, I remember feeling the same way about like Miles Davis bitches brew. I'm really feeling the same way about the first time I heard Deerhoof. I was just like, I don't know if I like this, but then somehow I would like 
give it another chance and another chance and then it those are the things that like maybe challenged like what I thought to be good and beautiful or something and like a lot of my sort of like big kind of things that influenced me a lot have been things that I've had to like almost like live with and let it kind of affect me like over a course of time. Yeah. And, and so but at that point, you're, I'm guessing what you're like around 12 or 13 or something, you're in the HMV, you're listening to Kid A on the headphones. Yeah. Were, were you, were you creative yet yourself then? What was sort of the context for this? You know, what kind of, you know, was there anyone in your life who was introducing you to weird music or, or weirder art? I was already my first instrument was a piano. So I, I was kind of like taking piano lessons. I was taking some drum lessons at that point at 12. Mostly that side of things was all kind of like classical training and like almost in an academic realm in my brain, although it was like stuff that I really enjoyed doing. And then in terms of, as a listener, that was what I did is I just went to HMV and I listened to like a bunch of the stations and I think even at that point, I was already like listening to like very far flung different things. Like I think I, I was like a big fan of like pop punk at that age, but I was also a big fan of like Ibiza mixes, but I like didn't even know like where that was or what that was, you know, <laughs> I was just like listening to like these like kind of dance mixes and stuff. That's hilarious. And, um, going around HMV, I'd also like, there was a Jeff Buckley like retrospective thing. I like listened to that and was like blown away. So it was like a lot of like, just kind of random almost influences from being kind of listening to like all these different stations at the place where you, you used to go buy CDs, which is like such a, like a fossil kind of like thing to even talk about as an experience. Kid A might've been late. That might've been late 2000 for you. Cause it actually came out in October of 2000, man, two of the greatest records ever made came out that year. Uh, Voodoo and Kid A. <laughs> Two very different uh, uh, records, but both I remember so vividly. Like the first moment I heard them being just like, I'm, I'm dating myself, but I'm I'm definitely older than Ian. And uh, when I heard those, I was I was ready to hear them. Yeah, Ryan, tell me what was what was so go back a little to to baby Ryan though. What were the first? What was your kid A on the headphones at HMV? I think for me it was um, one of my first job or actually my very first job I, I worked at a media play it's like it's like a kind of like a borders or a barnes and noble or something like that you know um and i worked in the music department which was basically just like cds and tapes i i would on my breaks i would listen i would stay in the stay in the building and just sit and listen to the um different records that way i guess how i discovered ray charles who went on to be like one of my favorite artists as a teenager i actually got to see him live three times which is insane I, I don't i don't actually but as a kid i'm trying to think i definitely had a um i definitely loved um like i guess as i was young young i i loved elton john's candle in the wind i remember that was like that was like the first i remember being like so emotional listening to that song and not knowing why that's awesome. Um, I think was a really important lesson. Why do I feel this way? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a really cool life. It's a really cool life lesson. And as a maker, um, just to realize that you know there's there's so many aspects of what we do that that permeate you know past our you know the our cerebral cortex and into our, I'm 
Yeah, but I mean, I'm curious though. Did the kid did kid did kid you think? No, wait. You know, as the Seinfeld goes, what is this salty discharge? You know, like <laughs> did the kid did the kid you go like? No, really, I don't even know what the song is about. Why no, am I? you know was it was it a thing that you were prone to analyze even at that point was whether it you know whether it was that or whether ray charles like were you already kind of getting the kind of brain of like what is it about this and why do i like it so much who am i yeah i mean i started making music um my own music like as maybe like a you know by the time i was i mean actually i my parents started me in piano lessons a little early earlier than my siblings because i was already starting to play on the piano like making up songs and that, so I would have been like five or six, which is crazy because I have a six-year-old right now. It's just like I'm, I'm crazy to think about. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had a very emotional connection to music, uh, whether it was like like super cheesy, um, like Richard Marx or um, uh, some of the names of people I can't, I can't even remember, but they're like... Um, Are you talking about Brian Adams? Just say Brian Adams. It's Brian like- Adams. Yeah. Brian Adams. What was that song Brian Adams did? His big one. Well, everything I everything I do, I do everything, it free. I definitely learned how to play that on the piano. Actually, you know the first one. I think maybe the first thing I learned how to play on the piano, I taught myself was um, the theme to Top Gun. Oh damn! I don't even. I don't think I know how that goes. So you were? Did you? You didn't grow up in New York. Where is this? Early. I grew up in Connecticut. Yeah. Right. Talk me through the next phase of the your parents started you on the piano lessons early and you're already kind of writing, beginning to write songs. Like how did that evolve into something that was for you began to feel very serious? And and where, you know, what what did you do next? Yeah, it's I mean it's interesting. I, I actually just um reconnected with my piano teacher from when I was eleven. She I started when I was 11 with her. She was my second piano teacher. My parents entered me into this like young composers competition at uh, at Yale or just like was hosted by Yale. Um, And one of the um, adjudicators who taught at Yale and also at Wesleyan, the way I think it probably really happened, she tells it like she was very impressed and took me on as her student. But I think what really happened is my mom bribed her. <laughs> so she took me on as a student. Wait, really? You think so? Yeah. I mean, I just, I just, I can't imagine this woman who taught at Yale. She's a professor of piano and composition. Like she's, she's not going to like see this 11 year old kid and be like, oh, I want to like teach, you know, this kid piano and composition. But sure, it wasn't like, like- Oh my God, he's a genius. <laughs> I don't think so. She she told the story in uh, when I spoke to her a couple weeks ago. She she told it like that, but I think she was just being generous. She might have <laughs> give me her number and a caller and ask her the hard hitting questions. <laughs> um. Anyway, so so uh, I I started uh, studying with her, which is really cool and totally weird because I was going to. Um, music school, like college, like a college, um, to, I was going to Wesleyan every week to, you know, this little kid in like penny loafers, like showing up, like he's dressed, like he's coming out of Sunday school, going into these like college campus, you know, it felt very weird and it was, but it was awesome. I realized, I realized in retrospect how special that opportunity was, um, to get like some really serious training, but there was a moment and I, I had the pleasure of recounting this to her the other day. There was a moment where she said, you know, we're sitting at the piano and she's like, Ryan, you're not practicing. You know, why are you not practicing? You're wasting your mom's money. You're wasting my time. Like, 
And I and I remember just kind of telling her, I don't know, she's not fun anymore. And she looked me dead in my 12-year-old eyes and said, at some point, you're going to have to decide for yourself whether you want more from music than just fun. Whoa. <laughs> wow. And I mean, turns out I did. <laughs> Wow, intense. And I wonder, I mean, yeah, do you remember sort of how 11, 12 year old you took that? I mean, like, yeah, was that, did it hit you then? I knew it. I knew she was, I knew she was fucking right. I knew she was right. You know, because it was my young brain and person that was, didn't want to practice because it wasn't fun. But it was like my, you know, ageless, infinite spirit that was screaming for a deeper, experience of this mystical magical thing called music you know yeah so did you i mean yeah so you knew already then you knew that you were like something this is a special a very special thing for me and 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 moving forward did you as you seem like the kind of person who when you get into something you maybe get really really into it potentially no i mean really only like that with music i don't really i don't really have any other hobbies i'm not really i'm 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 very obsessed with music and usually when I'm doing something really fun and exciting and awesome, I'm I'm like kind of still wish I was home making music. <laughs> yeah. So I'm yeah. not I'm not obsessive about anything but anything else. What did that look like as a teenager? What once you entered the truly unequivocally obsessed phase, how did that play out? Well I had to give up I had to give up soccer. Um and I really liked playing soccer my whole life. I'd I'd played it as a, from as a kid. I was good at it, but I had to give that up because it was just not it was like I had to you know choose. I didn't really through high school and I, I I just my only friends were my bandmates. I had a band in school. I had like a girlfriend and I had my band and that was that was that was enough. And uh so I I I you know I had a very small number of friends, you know. And then I went to college and then kind of just like repeated that process of just finding an incredible little collection of musicians and spending all my time uh that way all the time that I had that wasn't in the practice room because I went to music school. So when did you begin expanding and learning other instruments? How quickly did that kind of start to happen? Well, that started happening actually earlier on because I was playing in bands um, growing up. So I'd like pick up the guitar, or, like sit at the drums and like we'd, you know, you, when you're kids, like everybody's like, everybody's kind of kind of sucks equally. Um, and, you know, you just kind of go to the thing that you kind of suck less at. So, you know, I I started learning the guitar and I, my sister had one in the closet and um you know, drums, I like through high school, I could always like do hand percussion pretty easily and stuff. Um, and in, in a way that was convincing, you know, my skills as as a pianist were porting into other places, you know, with relative ease. Um, but I, I never, I didn't really do any official training on any other instruments until college. And um, interestingly, the, the only other instrument I have training in formally is, is voice, <laughs> which is really funny. And Ian, tell me a bit about for you as you started to recognize, like now I'm I, I'm obsessed with music. I'm not doing it out of obligation. I'm doing it out of love. You know, what were the, how did your music fandom and your performance of music and your kind of arsenal of what you could do, how did that expand? I would say in high school, I went to a boarding school in New Jersey. So I was kind of like moved away from home. And at that point I was already pretty into music. I Back in Hong Kong, I was doing like the this like junior program at the Academy for Performing Arts, and like 
it was kind of like you know how when you're in school your identity can be kind of built around like the thing that you do you know and so that was already like solidly where I was at in middle school but then in high school it got more serious I discovered a lot a lot of different kinds of music moving to the, the states and became very obsessed I didn't have a band in high school I had a, actually tried to have a band in middle school we like kind of got it together uh, no one was really that serious about it <laughs> except for me and what was the music you were listening to at that point when you were when you were in boarding school? Boarding school, I went through a pretty big like classic rock phase, and that's probably also like when I spent the most of my time. Uh, like I taught myself how to play guitar, and that had a lot to do with it. You know, trying to learn how to play kind of Led Zeppelin songs, AC/DC songs, and stuff like that. And at the same time, the library there had like a really good collection of jazz, so I started getting into that and enjoying kind of the jazz ensemble at school and all of that. And uh, and then I was also interested in like joining the choir. So I was kind of doing every possible like musical extracurricular in school. Uh, and that structure really kind of helped me. Um, and it also helped me kind of make friends and, and meet people in a new country that with a new culture. Music in a lot of ways was also like a helpful way for me to kind of connect with people. When did you first start to see your the kind of music that interested you to, to play as being more experimental? What what made what made you sort of realize or be attracted to more out of the box kind of music? That's an interesting question. I think maybe the more I listened to uh, and kind of was digesting, the more I found myself looking for something different and. There was like one, this the choral director at the school at the time, he was really great like um, teacher and also had a class that was just like a music listening class, which was super cool. And I was turned on to a lot of things in that class. And he also asked people from the class to bring in things to listen to. So you would, you would listen, That's you so would rad. listen. Yeah, the class was you sit there for two hours and you listen to what full albums or selections of songs and then everyone discusses it we would go like album by album and i remember we did like dark side of the moon and there were like some things that like he was particularly into that he would share with us like uh, xtc and uh i think we did listen to some radiohead and yeah we would just listen to a song and then talk about it like afterwards you know everyone's impressions of it uh and both like sort of critically but also just like um emotionally and that was a really really cool thing that was like a class that he put that into practice at the school and so that was also one way in which I was kind of like learning how to listen to music and think about music through the lens of more than just like oh I like this or I don't like this it's like why and like you know what are the aspects that you like about it and what don't you like about it and make you know deeper kind of reflection on on what taste means, you know, and what makes something timeless versus not timeless and things like that. And Ryan, what about you? When did you start to feel like, you know, love for Brian Adams aside, that you were starting to gravitate toward more, you know, more unconventional music? In high school, I started studying, we, my parents moved and they found me another really great teacher, super rad weirdo, who was a um, student of Bernstein. And he really introduced me to, I was already, I was already, I wasn't really listening to classical music, but I was studying it, but I was already listening to a lot of music that was not 
like what all the other kids were listening to pretty much just like listening to like i said ray charles and tower of power and uh p funk and prince like nonstop. like definitely like a very funk um based palette <laughs> um <laughs> a funk based curriculum <laughs> <laughs> pretty much i mean it's like all i listened to it was like um because i was in a funk band and it was just like that's what i was learning some of the rudiments of jazz but like definitely through the through the lens of the funk aesthetic but then on the other side of my brain i was like something about my european classical music was like starting to to catch on in my brain and then i met this dude who became my teacher jay hinson and he was like he was like me he loved all kinds of music but he his music like was even way was way broader his appreciation for it was way broader so he actually kind of rescued me from becoming a classical like nerd like like a kid that was like a snob because I could really go that way because I was really becoming very good at the piano and I was looking starting to look down at pop music because it wasn't like again I wasn't listening to you know pop music I was like listening to souls and this weird classical stuff and so but he uh he started to introduce me to like some amazing music and and I think the the music that hit me the hardest that he introduced me to was the music of Bartok, the Hungarian composer, 20th century composer, Bartok. Well, a piece of music from 1937, uh, music for strings, percussion, and celeste, was a piece that, uh, when I heard it, was the first one, along with Concerto for Orchestra, which were, was on the same album that he let me borrow. And it was it was that record that was like, where I started to hear like these, cr these crazy sounds coming out of the orchestra and this, this, these things that felt furious and full of like, angst and anguish but also kind of like these wild rhythms that felt like so adventurous and um and it was it that's the first time i feel like i i heard the orc the cont um the orchestra i heard the p potential for the orchestra um to do something far beyond what i was the box that i had put it in and i think that was important for me because i it showed me that it wasn't so much the tools it was how you use the tools and that maybe the delineations between music that I was forming in my head should be should disappear. And he helped me in that in that way a lot because he was like showing me about some really incredible craftsmanship and pop music that I had that I had looked over. And he blew your mind with "Kiss from a Rose." Kiss from right? a Rose. He's like help me like pull apart that uh, that song that Seal song. It's, it's like the way, it's construction, the way it's designed, and all these like twists and turns, the harmonic structure, the, the like melodic structure, such an amazing, and it's so so hard to make a piece of music that's like like such an earworm, and yet that that contradicts so many of the impulses that you'd you'd have uh, melodically and harm, harmonically. Anyway, so um, and Peter Gabriel was another big one. Sting, you know these like icons of uh, adventurous. Um, Pop music, make pop and rock music. Yes, David Byrne, Ryan Eno. And and Ryan, talk me through some of the years, the kind of early years of of Sunlux and of kind of playing music, the playing the music that led you to start the Sunlux project in in these years before you had hooked up with Ian and Rafiq. Um, actually, it wasn't playing music that um, led it to, led to it. It was just making and listening to music. I wasn't playing after after college. Uh, I stopped playing. I actually moved. I made my way with my wife because I got married right out of college to Cleveland to help start up a, a modern dance company that actually is still around, which is really cool. But I knew no other professional musicians for six years. I was the only musician I knew. 
And it was actually in that context that I made the Sun Looks uh, record, kind of in uh, most of that work was was there in in Cleveland, just working out of my attic in an attempt to kind of write what I wanted to hear. That was one of the primary goals of the project because it it was just like what I did when I wasn't doing work, when I wasn't writing, you know, music for this dance company or helping produce um, other people's projects or helping um, to mix other people's projects because I used to I used to mix people as well. I want to linger for a minute too on the dance thing, because obviously that's an important part of your arsenal and of your career because I didn't. And, and tell me a little bit more about this. So you, you moved there to start the dance company and was the idea built into that, that you would be composing music for the choreography. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a, it was like a twofer. Uh, My wife is a dancer. And so the company hired both of us. And so we, we moved together to, to be there, you know, work for pennies, but like basically do something that was really rewarding creatively. And I, that's how I really cut my teeth uh, with respect to my production style, which was originally based on having a profoundly minimal number of tools and with those tools developing as kaleidoscopic a, a sound as I could possibly create and meet the demands of each da- dance uniquely without having a unique set of tools for each demand. So that was an important, really important stage of my creative development. And it's really in that context that I developed much of the aesthetic that would go on to define the Sunlux project. The original plan was I was going to find people on MySpace who could sing. The first, well, the first piece of music that um, went on to become a Sunlux song I, I had started as a, a piece of music for this dance company called Inlet Dance Theater. And I even remember now uh, the, the name of the piece was Ascension, which is a cool thing to start uh, the, the, the beginning of a like, life-defining creative endeavor. Uh, that's, that piece of music went on to become the song Weapons um, from the first Sunlux record. And that was the first, so officially the first piece of Sunlux first Sunlux song I ever started writing. So and that would, that was in October of 2004. It was a long time ago. Still still slaps. Still, still slaps. <laughs> Did you have an explicit idea when you were starting the Sunlux project and as you said there was stuff you wanted to hear that you weren't hearing? Can you just can you describe what that what that was or what some of the foundational kind of concepts were for what this music would be? Yeah, that that first record I was really interested in uh reconciling a lot of my a lot of my urges that came from the part of my brain that went to music school and learned a lot about different kinds of ways of thinking about music and approaching music that was quite analytical, but also really like fascinating. Uh, reconciling that part of my brain with the part of my brain that just loved to listen to boom bap and to soul music and to Ciro's or Radiohead, you know, like the, my listener brain and my writing brain. They feel felt like they were often at odds, and I felt like it was just because like the music that there is some music that theoretically that can accommodate like both of these sides of my brain. I eventually realized that it's not really binary in that way, but I was thinking of myself in that way, and so that was a primary thrust of the project. Conceptually, I was also really interested in whether or not I could abandon 
binary form, song form, which is like first chorus, verse chorus, and still make a pop record. And I was going to lean into these non-pop conventions to introduce the kind of dramaturgy necessary to make the song interesting. So, uh, so I was I was basically working with chants, C H A N T S, singular little fragments of text. Not serendipity chance, y'all. But I actually was working with <laughs> aleatory as well, just ch- uh, chance. I was, I was, that was one of the concepts that I c h a n c e. That was I was also experimenting with, and that came from the part of my brain that uh, I went to music school. Um, yeah, so I mean, I was. It was kind of like all of the things that I hadn't yet quite had an opportunity to either hear or make. I just found myself doing those things, and I was also learning, you know, how to make music with a computer. I'm a pianist and I went to school for composition and it was like very, a very conservative school. And it was like, this was a long time ago. This is, you know, I went, I graduated in 2001. And so the tools that we, that were readily available with respect to making, you know, music uh, were, were very limited, especially, especially, and I had like, I I just had no money. So I I spent most of my time sampling uh, classical music CDs from the library. And then making, trying, trying my best to through pastiche to make music that way. You know, every single day I went onto a um, MacMusic.org looking for freeware, and that's how I, that's how I learned to to make music. And and somehow it turned into the first Sun Lux record, which uh, you know, which took like three years to make. You know, it was a very slow process, and I I did. Um, get some a couple different important grants along the way that enabled me to kind of get some more tools and that was that was really an essential part as well so I had help yeah and I mean over those first few albums obviously it sounds like you you started it with the idea that um you know no pressure it was going to be another outlet for stuff that you weren't doing for for the dance company and then uh, I mean out of the gate it did pretty well so I mean Sunlux uh, pretty quickly established a reputation yeah my manager connected me to an, a label that was that had a great rep- reputation um uh it was called Anticon Records and that was cool because it had a, it had an aesthetic connection to hip hop which is what one of the things that I wanted to make sure I maintained. And my my manager Michael is still with us. He's he's still our primary manager, Sunlux. So he was he's been there since the beginning. So he connected me to Anticon. I put that record out, but then it sat. But then you know it did it did well, but I couldn't tour it or anything like that. I wound up getting a job in New York though through making that record. Of um, an old friend of mine, basically used it as an excuse to introduced my music to his bosses and I got hired for for ads. It was a post house. So I was writing music for ads on the daily. That was my day job. And I didn't really, I couldn't tour. And um and then uh Robin Hilton uh at NPR, who loved the first record and included it in among his year-end best ofs, he hit me up in at in January of 2010. No. 2011. And he said, NPR is doing this coverage of this phenomenon called RPM challenge, which is a thing that songwriters have starting to do on mass where they give themselves one month to finally get off their couch and make the music that they've been wanting to make. The idea is you make an album in a month um, and it's the shortest month of the, of the year, um, uh, interestingly. So we were over at NPR, we're thinking of who made a really good record but hasn't made another record in a long time and you know who who could we encourage to make a record and and then give them 
an outlet for you know promoting it by documenting the process. And I forwarded it to Michael and I was like, interesting, you know. And he said, you have to do this. I said, that's not going to do this. It's crazy. I'm like, There's no way I'm doing it. It's like, no, you're going to do this. So um, that's what I did. I made um, I made an album, uh, my second album, uh, We Are Rising, in the month of uh, February, 2011, and um, and I did it. I I released it in March. Then <laughs> the third record, though, is the third record I also made relatively slowly. I started it in New York, but then finished it in California. My wife and I moved. Um, to Orange County to for her to go back to uh, school to get her master's. And um, I did most of the Lanterns record out of a, like kind of a student housing apartment complex, the most ridiculous place where everybody's like constantly grooming their lawns. You know what I did though? I went to Ikea and I bought a bunch of cabinets uh, or, or like a wardrobes. And I lined my, I shrunk my room. I lined the two walls, two outside walls with cabinets. I went to Home Depot and I stuffed them with R19 up above and below. And then I put um, ropes with like, um, because of earthquakes and stuff, I put like hooks, um, like a system of ropes and hooks in the wall to like hold hold them against the wall in case they started to shake. And then I installed um, track curtains in front of them. So I literally made like a makeshift two like walls full of insulation um, so that I could I could have a quiet space. Um, I never knew that. That's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's And I made lanterns in that room pretty much. And then I moved back to New York. My wife was already in New York at the time because she had gotten another job um, dancing back in New York. I had to drive, drove across the country. And I remember I drove from Indianapolis to New York City that day um, with my dog on release day, 13 and a half hour drive. And I got to Brooklyn, grabbed a six pack of, uh, at the bodega and went up to meet Jen in our new empty apartment on Classen. And we we uh, drank a couple beers and slept on the floor of an empty apartment. That that was my rock star um, album release day, <laughs> Lanterns, uh, which, um, went on to become the really pivotal record for me and for my career to get me into a place that where I could um, tour. And then once I was able to pull the trigger and, and tour, that's when um, that's when I, I lucked out and met my my best friends um, Ian Chang and Rafiq Bhatia. Um, and it was in the context of trying to form a, a band that could just uh, go out and play some shows. And in the end, it was like, nah, let's just do this for real. Yeah. So how did you, it wasn't MySpace at that point that you were using to find, how did you find Ian and Rafiq? And what was it that at that point, having been able to have this incarnation of it, that was, that was just you, what was it other than, you know, proficiency, but what were you looking for in yeah. your collaborators? Yeah. I, I had already started working with Rafiq. He actually plays on uh, the song Easy on Lanterns. Um, we had had some mutual friends and there was some discussion about trying to maybe play a show together. His music is, that he was making by uh, his solo project, it was like super awesome. And like it, when I first heard it, I was like, he was really different as a musician than I was, but also there were certain things about it, his music that I was like completely in sync with. And I felt like we had like this kind of symbiosis and shared DNA that was like really fascinating. And I immediately was like, I just have to figure out how to like start working with this guy, you know? So um, I invited him to be a part of a, my first film score, which uh, Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. And 
then I was uh, doing a collaborative project called uh, Sisyphus or be, go on to become called Sisyphus uh, with um, Serengeti and Sufjan Stevens. I invited him to be part of that. So he plays on two songs on that record. And then, so when it came time, I got back to New York and he was in New York. So I was like, yo, I want to go on tour. Would you consider like going out on the road with me? I know the music is not guitar based, but it didn't really worry me because one of the things that I could clearly see and hear in, in Rafiq's, you know, music and his playing was that he wasn't really just just thinking about music through the lens of his instrument. And so that was that was a super high priority for me is like if I'm going to find even as a just a, ba a live bandmate, I, I was in, I was committed to the idea that this person, whoever it is, whoever it is, needed to be like, help me produce creatively have a sort of higher tier creative role in bringing the music to life for stage. I knew I needed a drummer. So I needed, I wanted a drummer that had ideas for me as a programmer and a vocalist. And I wanted a guitarist that had ideas for the drummer. And I wanted, you know, I wanted, I knew it had to be that way in order to like create something cohesive because the album was never designed to be done live. And so it was going to require sort of ground up rethinking of things. And so I, so, so I enlisted Rafiq and then he was like, I was like, you got to help me find, I need, I need like, we basically need like two more people or we can find a drummer who can basically be two people play electronics and drums at the same time. Um, and so, and I basically tasked Rafiq with, cause I didn't know anybody. I basically tasked Rafiq with <laughs> solving the hardest problem there was. And Ian can tell you uh, how he came to the picture. So we actually have Facebook to thank instead of MySpace. So Rafiq and I had played music together before and also shared bills in the past. So we sort of tangentially knew each other, but I was on the road a bunch around that time. And it's not like we were like close or anything, but there was a mutual respect for sure. And he was trying to think of a drummer and I, was, I hadn't come to mind yet until I, uh, I think I like, either commented on or hearted like a photo he posted from um, Defaro's Pizza in Brooklyn. And yeah, it was it was a photo of pizza on Facebook and that's what brought us together. What would you say is, um, you know, kind of the most, the most different about the way Sunlux approaches, whether it's shows or whether it's recording, you know, what has, what has changed the most since uh, since this trio incarnation of the band began? I think that the way that as a band we approach kind of sculpting sound comes from a very sort of, we love like in particular kind of exaggerating things that are natural or acoustic in a way that sounds hyper real or something like that. And it is something that in its own approach as like something that is done, you know, when you process audio and you like chop things up and done like on a computer, but all of that kind of has over the course of our life as a band has fed its way back into the way we approach our instruments and the way we play them. And as a result, we're kind of embracing more and more sort of just capturing like the act of playing our instruments and then letting that kind of take the lead. Ryan, what would you say is sort of the most, the most different about, about Sunlux in, in 2023? Uh, probably the, we're all Oscar nominated composers, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, I mean, yeah, that's, that's not what we expected. <laughs> and um, 
you know, whoops, <laughs> we've just been so um, fortunate to have consistently made music together and music that we feel very proud of and that has been the result of our continual exploration uh, personally and collectively. I mean, we're so fortunate that we can say that, you know, we've just spent the last 10 years making music we really love and with people we really love and um, being part of things we are very proud of. And this movie is sort of the culmination of those efforts in a way, because they are, the Daniels were drawn to our, drawn to us through our work, you know, just doing what we love to do, making, making cool things that we like with people we like, which is Daniel Scheinert's motto. That's what we were doing. And it, it caught their ear. Um, and, and at least in this universe, it was the perfect pairing for their crazy film, Blessings Upon Blessings. You know, we had the blessing to arrive to say that it was true, uh, that we were, this is how we operated. And then we, as a result, we <laughs> received more blessings, which is participating in such a integral way in this film to now feel celebrated with these nominations is, you know, it's like unfair. It's not fair. <laughs> so, so many great things uh, compounding over time. And um, yeah, it's crazy. Well, I'm so happy for you guys about all of it. I uh, very much look forward to hearing what music you guys make, you know, impelled forward uh, by this kind of universe, reinforcing doing what you do. So thank you so much. All right. Well, big thanks again to Sunlux's Ryan Lott and Ian Chang. And best of luck to them. I'm really rooting for Sunlux at the Oscars, which are another week and a half away, if you're listening to this when it's just come out. And thanks again for doing that. Also, I hope you'll consider digging into some of the other 85 episodes of LSQ, which you can find at JennyLSQ.com. And you can find me on most social platforms at JennyLSQ. Hit me up if you've got a question or feedback. I'll talk to you next time.